All right, so uh, this week, uh, take this budget, look at it. Wednesday night, we'll talk about it. We'll have a time uh, for Q&A and really walk through this stuff together. All right, Galatians chapter 4. I hope you've turned there. If you have your copy of God's Word with you, we're going to read it in just a moment. Galatians chapter 4. A really unique passage, probably, for a number of us who may not have read Galatians in a while. You come to this piece and you get what seemingly is a history lesson. What Paul is doing is drawing in this incredible story of Abraham, and he's mentioned Abraham throughout the entirety of Galatians. He's appealing to the history and the understanding of the very covenant people of God and using Abraham, the forefather of the faith, in so many ways to do that. Today, as we read this passage, we're going to see something really, really unique occur where Paul is a little less concerned with just the historical aspect and more so the meaning of what it means to be in God's family. Let's read this together. This is Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. It says this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is Now, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. As challenging as it is to understand this, this is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. It's a strange passage, right? It really, it really is really unique. It's really strange. And so here's what we want to do this morning. I want to kind of walk you through just a brief recap and let's kind of talk through the setup. How does Paul get to this place where not only he deems this story as something worthy of telling, but it's absolutely necessary to communicate the reality of the good news of Jesus that he's trying to put on display and ultimately persuade these people, these Christians in Galatia, in this area, to believe. So here's the reality. Um, What's Paul doing with this story? There is this group of people who we talked about for weeks, Judaizers. These folks who have come in, they're people that are Christians, but they have a Jewish heritage. And ultimately, they're saying, if you want to be in the covenant community of God, you have to become, in so many ways, Jewish. So these people have come to these churches in Galatia, which are primarily made up of people who don't have a Jewish background. They don't have a Jewish heritage. They're not Jewish ethnically in nature They're Gentiles. They're people that were, by birth in so many ways, pagans. They're just part of the world. They just grew up in a different way. And so Paul is coming and he's telling these Galatians, 
about the reality of who they are in Jesus, and he wants to make clear to them that these Judaizers claim that only those who physically belong to the family of Abraham, who physically belong, could share in the promise God made to him. What does that mean? Only the people who physically belong to Abraham can truly be their claiming in Christ. So the Galatians are being urged to legitimize themselves, to come into this fold, to actually be a part of this covenant family. How do they do that? And we've seen this throughout the work Paul has, has written to and described circumcision over and over and over again. Go back to Genesis, even a passage surrounding the text we'll address today. Back in Genesis 17 and beyond, you'll see the picture of the covenant that is marked by, that is revealed by circumcision. And now, even though the promise has been realized in Jesus Christ, these Judaizers are saying, you want to be a part of God's family, you want to be in the covenant community of God, you have to be circumcised. But Paul is deeply concerned with making sure that these believers, both Gentile and Jewish alike, recognize that they're justified by faith in Christ, not their ethnic origin or their affiliation. That they are made new, that they are believers only by trusting in the good news, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. So Paul speaks boldly surrounding Abraham throughout this passage to assure Christians that they're part of God's family, not by keeping the law, not by merely being circumcised, not by adhering to the law in a legal sense, but through faith alone. Why is this so pressing? Why is the purity of the gospel seemingly always on the forefront of Paul's mind? Perhaps throughout everything that he writes in the New Testament. Why? He wants to make clear that the law was never intended to serve as a means of justification. The law was not intended to serve as a means of justification. Uh, Dr. Timothy George, uh, he's at Beeson, or he was for a long time the dean at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, he writes a commentary on Galatians. It's incredibly helpful. He really sums it up pretty simply in this one sentence. Properly understood, the law points beyond itself. So the law points beyond itself, both backwards toward the Abrahamic covenant and forward toward its final fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So the law is the picture of, the instruction of, the very word of God that points backwards to everything that he has promised to his people. And yet also forward to the total fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So this is what the law is about. The promise given and the promise fulfilled. So why does Paul tell this story? This story about Abraham and Sarah and ultimately Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael. And one of the earliest stories that we find recorded in the scriptures, go back in Genesis 16, is where this story is found. Why does Paul use this story? Because in some ways to you and I, it might look like as we read this, that this thing just comes out of nowhere. We're talking about the gospel, we're talking about law, and now we're talking about the earliest people in the faith. And we're telling a story and describing one as a city and associating one with a city and a place. Like, What is Paul doing in this moment? Here's the thing that we have to remember. you got to remember as Paul writes this letter, he's doing so 
with the premise that this is not just like a pen pal situation where he's saying, hey, hope you're good. Tell me about how you're doing. Paul is constructing a very robust, rational argument for the preservation of the gospel. So throughout all of the letter thus far, all the way up to chapter 4, Paul has made a case for the fact that there's no other gospel, that we shouldn't be trusting in the Mosaic law to give us righteousness, that we shouldn't be trying to produce a life of righteousness and salvation through obedience to the law. Instead, that our life, truly our life, our salvation, and all that comes with it is through Jesus Christ by faith alone. So in order to illuminate this truth, Paul uses a story that this community would be familiar with with. Because here's the thing, this community and the believers that are there, they perhaps would not have a, a copy of the scriptures like you and I have that we take for granted. We have the Bible that we can open every day and read very clearly in our own language these words. These hearers would not. They would likely not have that. What they would have is a deep understanding and the oral history of the story of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, shorthand often referred to as the law. They would know these stories. So Paul uses this to illuminate that truth. And the reality is he's also using this not only to express the reality of justification by faith, but to do it in a way where he turns the story against the way it's being used by these Judaizers who are saying, if you want to be in the family of God, you've got to be circumcised. You want to be in the family of God, you've got to do all the things that Abraham did. And Paul says, no, and I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to use Abraham's story to do so. So Paul writes in here, and he describes that it may be interpreted allegorically, which is a really unique aspect that we find in the New Testament. We won't find this other places. What is an allegory? An allegory is a story that presents one thing in words and another thing in meaning. It presents one thing in words, but something else in meaning. So there's examples of this, like a famous Christian example would be uh, uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It is an allegorical story. There's other things in, in modern and, and, and common literature that you and I would recognize as allegory. One famous one would be George Orwell's Animal Farm. Another would be, and this would obviously also be common to our children, Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. These are stories that say one thing with words, but they actually mean another. I want to give you an example from a film that I think might help us. Uh, it's a movie called The Truman Show. Has anybody seen The Truman Show? It's been out a long time at this point. Um, and, and, and look, shot in Seaside, Florida, really close to here. You could, you've probably walked in. Some of you who've been to the beach in Seaside or, or Highway 38 in Florida, you've probably walked some of the places that were shot in that film. Well, what is the Truman Show? Truman Burbank, who's played by Jim Carrey in one of his first big dramatic roles, right, is a man whose life is a nonstop TV show. His whole life is on camera. He's being filmed constantly, and he has no idea. He doesn't realize that his quaint hometown, that his insurance job, that his wife, his friends, his whole life is an entire studio set, that his life is a reality TV show, and the people that are living, that are working there, everyone he interacts with, they're all Hollywood actors. They're all people that are putting on a show. And if you've seen the movie, you know the series of unfortunate events that comes to this place where he has a decision to make. He can either stay living in this reality that he's been in for his whole life, or 
He can walk off the set, off through the studio door into actual reality. And he leaves the show. That's the choice that he makes. He chooses the latter. He leaves the show. And you see all these people around cheering and celebrating. It looks just like when a team wins the World Series or wins the Super Bowl and they pan to all the, the, that city, right? And you see all these people going nuts. The Truman Show, at the end of the show, when the transmission ends, all these people are everywhere. They're clapping. They're cheering. They're celebrating. They're people that are crying. They've lived with this person. They've watched this person. They, he's become, in so many ways, a part of their life. That people are dramatically impacted by this. But the most poignant moment of the film are its last words. Because what you see is a couple of what seemingly is a couple of security guards at work. And they're watching the TV at work. And as soon as this big, giant, anthemic, climactic thing ends, they look to one another and say, what else is on? Immediately. This huge thing has happened, and now they're all of a sudden, already, they're like, well, all right, I guess it's time to pick a new show. So what's happening in this moment? Well, the whole story, the whole movie is about our obsession with reality TV. And ultimately, how real people, like Truman Burbank, if that even really was his name, right, are dehumanized by consumer audiences. That's the meaning. That's the point of the whole movie, and it lies behind that. Now, the movie never said that with words, but that's the understanding that we get when we watch the thing, when we see it. So here's what Paul is doing in a very similar way. He's taking the words of the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar from Genesis 16 to persuade the Galatians to understand the meaning of what Christ has accomplished for them. Of what Jesus has done. So why all of this? Why this buildup? Why is Paul using an allegory? Here is why. This day and age in Paul's time, at this place in the Greco-Roman world, and even the, the Jewish world, the Hellenistic world, allegory was a profound rhetorical tool. It was a device. It was a way that people told stories. They would take literature, historical literature, and they would allegorize it, and that would be the way that they would present their case. That they would help people understand the thing that they're trying to say. So Paul is using this method to help them see the meaning of being in God's covenant family. Not by ethnicity, but by their faith. He's less focused on the historical interpretation. And he's deeply focused on helping the Galatians understand, using this story to help them understand their relationship to the law. And their relationship is this. They're part of the family of God who was given a promise, and that promise has already been realized in Jesus, and they don't have to turn to the law to find life. So, look into verse 21, and this is what you're going to see. It says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So, Abraham is described in Genesis, and that comes before what we would consider the inception in so many ways of the law. I mean, think about it. The Ten Commandments don't come until Exodus 20. So what is Paul doing here? Ultimately, kind of like we talked about earlier, there's a couple of different ways to talk about the law. One way is to address the teaching, the very commands of God. Another way, the law could also mean this other thing typically, it was this, the Pentateuch. When people would say the law, often it was meant truly as shorthand or, or as, a, as a nickname of sorts for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
So Paul's doing this really unique thing here where he's saying, you want to be under the law? Don't you even listen to the law? Don't you understand the law? And he's talking about the story of Abraham in Genesis. And you likely know this story, but in brief, God promised Abraham and Sarah a child in their old age, and dramatic old age. Promised that he would give them a child. And so even Paul throughout this passage is referred to the seed of Abraham, the child of promise, that God is one who makes promises and keeps promises. And ultimately that the promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But God gives Abraham and Sarah this promise that he's going to give them a child. But they're impatient. And more so than impatient... They're unbelieving. They struggle to trust, to believe, and take God at his word. That he's actually going to give them a child, so they take matters into their own hands. Sarah encourages Abraham to bear a child with Hagar, the Egyptian servant. So this is, as Paul would describe, a child of the flesh produced the natural way. And then there's all this reference to Mount Sinai and all of these different things. What is Paul doing when he tells this story? Well, here is what he's doing. Ultimately, he's going to use this story and and the facts and the things that are within it to convey this. The desire was such to realize the promise, to experience this child, to get the thing that was so desired that they stepped out, that Abraham and Sarah stepped out and said, you know what, instead of waiting on the Lord to do this for us, we're going to go do it on our own. We're going to produce this. We're going to make this happen. And so as Paul writes, he talks about a child of the flesh being Ishmael, the child that was born to Abraham and Hagar. A child of the flesh and one who's born to a slave woman. Because Paul's doing something really unique here. He's saying in so many ways that to be what the Judaizers long for these people to be, which is people who experience God by just following the rules... That they are not unlike the decision that was made in this circumstance where someone is trying to produce results for themselves on their own. The whole point of this story is Paul is saying, don't you understand? Instead of trusting in the promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ, you're saying, no, we want to hurry up, we want to earn, we want to create, we want to produce our own salvation through following the law. And throughout this entire letter, Paul has been saying to them, don't you understand, the law cannot produce what it demands. You cannot be perfect. You cannot fully keep the law. And ultimately, he's saying you're using the law in the wrong way. The law was not intended to be a means for you to earn salvation. The law is that which is the teaching of God that is beautiful and it points backward to the promise that he's given and it points forward to the promise that will ultimately come and be fulfilled in Jesus. 
But he's telling these Galatian Christians, he's saying, don't do this. Don't submit yourself to the law in order to produce salvation for yourself. Don't you understand? You have salvation by what Christ has done for you. You've repented of your sin. You've trusted in Jesus Christ. Then you're free. You don't have to live in this way under this. Because look into verse 25. Paul uses this description. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds with the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. What in the world does this mean? Well, Paul is ultimately saying, and hear this carefully, the law produces children that are enslaved. Just like Ishmael, Hagar, the law produces children that are enslaved. So what does Paul mean by that? Because in many ways, I think as we read through Galatians and quite often look through Romans, you might look at what Paul is saying and say, doesn't he understand the beauty of the law? Doesn't he understand the beauty of God's instruction, his teaching? Are we just disregarding this wholesale? And the answer is no. Paul reveres God's law as beautiful and wonderful. Think about the Ten Commandments. Think about Psalm 119, 176 verses that describe the beauty of God's law, delighting in the law of God. So is Paul diminishing this? Is he saying this is worthless? He's not. What he is saying is that it is worthless to attempt to produce salvation by attempting to keep the law. To the letter. Every bit. It can't produce salvation. The law is beautiful as it points to the promise realized in Christ Jesus. But remember the Judaizers that Paul is describing. These people that have infiltrated the Galatian church. And said you got to be circumcised. You got to keep these festivals. You got to do these things. If you don't observe the calendar. If you don't do this stuff then you are not in the covenant family of God. These Judaizers, they don't delight in the spirit of the law and all of its wisdom that points to the character of God. They are using the law and they are attempting to coerce, to bewitch, as Paul says, to trick, to deceive these Christians to, to believe that they have to produce their own salvation through keeping the law. And they got to keep all of it and they got to do it right. Paul is saying, that is not true. And then Paul gets really aggressive, and it's hard for us to understand contextually how vivid and how challenging and how visceral the language is that he's using when he's calling Hagar Sinai, the place where the law is delivered, right? Where the law comes from. And then he's describing this whole scenario of the law enslaving people because they're living under the curse of trying to meet its demands. He, gets, he goes even further and he says that she corresponds to present Jerusalem. Now, these Judaizers have a very strong feeling about Jerusalem, that it's incredible, that it's God's city, that it's the place of their faith. So for Paul to equate slavery with the present Jerusalem is aggressive language. And here's what he's doing as he does that. He's saying that present Jerusalem is characterized by those people who are seeking salvation through the law. But there's a new Jerusalem. 
And you can read all about it in Hebrews chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 13. And, and the, best, probably the best encapsulation is found in Revelation chapter 21. But the new Jerusalem is the city of God. It's the people of God who did not keep the law fully, who were not perfect in their actions, but instead have trusted Christ for salvation and now are caught up into life with him. These are strong words. That Jerusalem in 26 is free. And Paul's saying that, don't you understand that this is your lineage? The motherhood he talks about, you come from, your life is found, and your family is in what Christ has done for you. Look into verse 27, and you see this quote that comes from Isaiah 54.1. And what Paul is doing is he's reciting these verse, this verse, and he's describing the scenario. This is, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. That barrenness refers back to Sarah. It refers to the fact that God keeps his promise. And that she could live in a place... And had the opportunity to believe and trust and rest in what was not happening yet. She wasn't experiencing labor yet. She wasn't experiencing the gift of this promised child yet. But she had the promise of God to trust on, to depend upon. And here Paul is drawing out the reality that the promise has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus himself. And now Paul's language becomes perhaps the strongest. And he says, now you brothers... Like Isaac, are children of promise. So Isaac was the one that rather than being the child of the flesh, as Paul describes here, is ultimately the child of the spirit. The child that comes supernaturally in old age to Abraham and Sarah. The thing that they thought could not happen, that God must have been mistaken, that this is physiologically impossible. No, now they experience the child Isaac and Paul is saying to all these people, you got to understand this, who don't come from the Jewish background, who don't have the pedigree, who are uncircumcised, who don't know the days and the feast. These people who have just believed in and trusted in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all things and yet have no actual ethnic tie to this, he's saying, you're the ones that are like Isaac. You are the ones that are spiritual children of God. And he does so in a way to offend and to anger the Judaizers. It just happens naturally because they would consider themselves, say, no, 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 we're of the lineage of Abraham. We're the ones who have lived under the covenant and the law. He's saying, not if you are attempting to justify yourself by the law, that that is tantamount to slavery. You're a free person who is freely walking into bondage. You're literally walking into a cell and closing the door behind yourself. If you attempt to think that anything other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus redeems you. It's not this other stuff. So, Paul uses this language which would... Certainly be offensive. And then verse 29 is a reference to Genesis 21. Where there's this moment where Ishmael is persecuting and he's mocking Isaac. So the child that was produced naturally, Ishmael, the one 
who has come in such a way that, that, that his parents were seeking to produce something that God didn't desire, that wasn't intended, not, not believing, impatient on waiting on the promise, that child is now mocking and abusing and, quite frankly, persecuting Isaac. What's Paul doing here? He's saying, look, this is what the Judaizers are doing to you. They're taking the role of the slave child. They're taking the role of the one who lives in the flesh and is telling you, if you don't do all this stuff, then you're out. And then at the close, Paul says, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. It might seem like a strange way to kind of wrap up in so many ways a lot of what Paul is doing with his argument, but it's really all kind of built to this moment because here's what he's saying. That those who live by the flesh and those who live to try to take the law and use it in such a way that I'm going to keep the law and therefore I'm going to satisfy God and I'm going to prove that I deserve to be a part of the family, that I deserve to have salvation, that I deserve to be with God. Paul's saying, people that believe that need to be cast out. And he's talking about the church. He's saying that the Judaizers should be cast out of, they should not be allowed to be a part of the churches in Galatia. Why? This man who's brilliant, way, way more brilliant than me, his name is F.F. Bruce, and he describes it this way. Legal bondage and gospel freedom cannot coexist. Legal bondage and gospel freedom can't coexist. The church is not pure. The church is not reflective of the truth of what Christ has done. If we're saying to one another, we're actually got to keep all these laws too, and we got to do this stuff. Paul's saying, I told you that if that's necessary, then what is the cross for? What has Jesus died for? If you have to do these things, that nullifies the work of the cross. Paul's saying, don't you understand? This has become a place where we're holding one another to standards and we're pointing out people and we're comparing ourselves to one another and saying, I'm more righteous than them because I've done this and I observed this feast and I did this thing and I'm circumcised and they're not even circumcised. How do they even get in here? How can they even be a part of this? How do they even get to experience this? And Paul's saying, you don't understand. It's all grace. And you experience this only by faith. Faith in trusting Jesus, not by what you do. It serves in so many ways as a summary of the entire argument. So Paul takes these words and he infuses and he uses a different meaning to help these believers understand that to take the law and to obey it with the desire to produce salvation is slavery. And yet, no matter where you come from, where you've been, what your ethnic origin is, whatever you've done, if you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus Christ, you're saved. 
not by your work, but by what we call the gospel. It means good news, the good news of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. That's what makes us free. That's what makes us his. This is why we sing powerful words. These three words we sang earlier are so powerful. In Christ alone, there's no other place where you and I can put our hope. So here's a question for us. As, as we begin, as our worship team comes and we begin uh, to sing about God's promise together, to rest in God's promise. I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves, to ask our spouses, to ask our friends, to ask people in community group. You know, where are the places in my life where I'm trying to produce righteousness? Where I'm trying to generate and create this opportunity for God to see how good I've done. And that I actually deserve to be a part of the family. Where are those places in our life? Where we're failing to believe in the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. Where we're failing to believe that he's our all in all. That everything that he's done is enough. And we're saying, no, I've got to fix this thing. I've got to do this thing. And you might say, well, Michael, do I just stay in sin? Is that what you're telling me? I just keep on doing that thing and I just, I'm just like, well, Jesus has got it. He did it, so I'm good. I can just kind of do whatever. And it's a pretty nuanced question, but here's what I would say. Belief in the gospel will drive you to a life where you live obediently. And you won't be perfect, but God will sanctify you, and you'll change, and you'll transform, and you'll grow. So where's the place in your life where you're failing to believe the promise? What's the thing that you're doing where you probably wouldn't even like maybe think of it this way or, or feel it this way in a resonant way always, but ultimately you look back and you say, like, I think I'm doing that to try to make God happy with me because I don't believe Jesus has done it for me. Because we've got those spots. And for me, they happen in these weird places. They're called Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and believe it or not, Sunday. We're children of promise. And we just get to believe it. We get to rest in it. We get to enjoy it. We get to experience it. There's, like, there's really bad news in the sense that you can't keep the law. You're not half as good as you think you are. And in fact, you're infinitely worse than you could ever imagine. So kind of a downer to end on, right? Here's the good news. That sin, that deep darkness, that pain, that mistake, the thing that you've done, the thing that you think you got to work off, 
It is not even a grain of sand in the ocean of God's mercy and forgiveness. You're loved, you're forgiven, you're redeemed in Christ Jesus. You are children of promise. So this morning, I encourage you to do this. Stand up. Literally, like actually stand up with your bodies. And let's take a moment and pray together and thank God that we are children of promise, that we've benefited only from what Christ has done. And then let's sing and worship him together. So if you will, bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, God, this room is filled with people that are your people. People, Father, people that you've redeemed. People that you've saved. People that you have imputed, you have given your righteousness to. Father, not because of what any of us have done, but because of what you have done for us in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And Father, this morning, that is good news. So God, even in this moment, would you cause us to praise you, to rest in you, to trust in the promise that you gave ages ago and that has been fulfilled in your son, Jesus. God, we worship you, we praise you even now this morning because of the promise fulfilled. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.